and welcome to Access to Justice. I'm your host, Heather Malarick of Merrick Law. I'm jo- joined by my co-host today, Evan Clark of Kahane Law. Hey, Evan, how's it going? Hey, Heather. It's going good. Yeah. Going real good. Yeah. How are you doing? I'm okay. I'm a little nervous about today's episode. We're filming on a Monday instead of a Thursday. I'm hoping I don't have too much of like a Monday vibe going on. <laughs> <laughs> but uh yeah I'm, I'm doing well uh we are joined today by our very special guest guest kim mcdonald of mcdonald advisory kim's a financial advisor and insurance advisor with raymond james limited how are you kim nervous about today because costanza was up to no good about five minutes ago he opened my recycle bin and put shredding stuff all over my house and uh it seems that he's up to trouble so i'm hoping that he doesn't interfere on our podcast today it's okay he can be another special guest (laughs) two special guests This is this is my dog. Uh, uh, he's a French bulldog, and he is uh, not well behaved. <laughs> yeah, I assumed it wasn't another person. As this, as like at first, I was a little suspect, and then as he started explaining, I was like, "Oh no!" Yeah, that's her husband's name. Yeah, <laughs> only when he's being misbehaving, though, right? <laughs> he got into the shredding, and it's just been a mess. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, well, I am so excited to welcome our guest today, Ruth Williams. Hi, Ruth. How are you doing? Good. How's everyone? Yeah, yeah. Good, good. Um, we are going to be talking to Ruth today about refugee and immigration law, but first I'm going to give a little intro. So Ruth is an immigration lawyer with Legal Aid Alberta, and through her work there, she helps folks with refugee claims, refugee appeals, judicial reviews of negative refugee decisions, criminal removal appeals, admissibility hearings, and detention reviews. Um, she works closely with a large number of communities groups in the area of immigration law. Um, There's just almost too many to list here, but we'll post um, the listing on our website. So many community um, groups that assist um, in that area. Um, Ruth has been working in this area since, well, since the beginning of your career. Is that right, Ruth? Since about 2008? Um, Oh, Oh, now you're trying getting me to date myself. So it's <laughs> uh, no, it would be like uh, like that at the beginning because I was called to the bar in Ontario, two thousand five, two thousand six. Okay, yeah. And then, um, and then, no, because it was because I we started the immigration program in two thousand and ten at Legal Aid. Well, the oh, okay. the Edmonton version of it, and I joined mm. Legal Aid in two thousand and eight. In 2008. So you're looking at a dozen years now that you've been doing this work through legal aid. So um, Ruth really knows the struggle that lies ahead for people who are seeking asylum in Canada. And she finds a lot of value in her role in helping others improve their lives and that of their families. So um, the last little bit is that outside of work, you embrace your faith, your family, food, physical activity, and the rare chance to go to bed early. 
<laughs> That's never often enough, is it? No, no, I don't. I should actually just straight like that should just not be even mentioned about going to bed early because it never happens yeah but you want to and that's that's the thing and so you know yeah wanting something and getting something don't always align yeah i figure when i retire <laughs> no it's your hope it's your when you care. retire you got to stay busier than ever because otherwise you just die that's what happens people slow down and then it's a stark decline of health whereas yeah. people are like way too busy they just stay alive forever <laughs> I don't I don't know if that's I don't know if that's the loophole I'm not going to try that Evan I, I'm, I'm going to solidly not try your plan all right <laughs> we could be as we could be an experiment I right. could do like my plan of just slowing down Evan can do his plan of living like crazy hectic pace and then like we'll see whose funeral is first yeah when we die we can compare notes yeah. <laughs> Perfect. Kim and I will keep an eye on things. We plan on living forever. So, <laughs> well, it's so good to have you here. I see for those who are joining us by audio only, Ruth has also got some, um, it looks like some prayer flags hanging behind her. I also know that she's a very experienced yogi and a favorite instructor in Edmonton <laughs> among some of the, uh, the yoga set. Are you still uh, teaching yoga? as well Ruth? I am still teaching yoga and uh, not as often as I used to but still mm. still, pra still practicing quite a bit and still teaching as much as I can. Mm. And you're a bit of a kettlebell boss from what I remember. And I, and I do love the kettlebells. <laughs> you're still swinging those around? Still swinging those. I've got I've got a couple partial sleeve tattoos that I have to keep looking good <laughs> or else they will become regrets. So... <laughs> Gotta keep it tight. <laughs> yeah, if there's no better, if there's no better um, inspiration for staying physically fit, is like getting really cool tattoos that you have to maintain for the rest of your life. <laughs> oh, maybe that'll be my secret. I'm gonna get some uh, some upper arm tattoos, maybe or abs or something. I don't know. <laughs> Uh, well, I think you've got, it sounds like you've actually got a real recipe for longevity there. You do work that you love and that's rewarding. You're doing some strength stuff, yoga, you've got the, you know, the mind meditation thing all covered. Yeah, I'm totally going to beat Evan at this challenge. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Okay. Well, I don't do yoga, so you're probably right. <laughs> <laughs> Um, okay, well, Ruth, we are here to pick your brain about, I guess, refugee law and that kind of process. So um, maybe I'd like to start by asking you, like, what, how does a person enter into the process of becoming a refugee? And what does that even mean? Is that a legal status? Is that like a citizenship kind of thing? Maybe we can start right with the basics and go from there. All right, I'll start with um, what the legal status is, like what it means to be a refugee, because mm -hmm. it's a word that's often thrown around. And in 
So in the public domain and media, when they're saying refugee, they really are actually referring to individuals who have been displaced and people who are seeking refuge, so R-E-F-U-G-E. Um, and that is not the same as someone who is an internationally recognized refugee, which is refuge with an extra E at the end. So um, a a refugee is technically someone who has the designation of an individual who is a convention refugee. So they're individuals who have been recognized either by the UNHCR or um, or a, or a country to be as a person who who needs protection um, either on a short term basis or on a long term basis because they are fleeing persecution for a convention ground, whether it's race, gender, um, political opinion, religion. That's not all of them. I can't list them all. I can't, I can't, I can never remember. It's a short list, but I can never remember. Um, and um, are not able to return to their country of origin. So that's, so that's, a, that's a refugee. So you can gain that. So individuals gain that designation either when they go to another country and a country and that country is a signatory to the UN convention on to the UN convention on refugees and so that so when canada for example someone comes someone does an inland refugee claim they're determined to be considered a refugee and so then that designation is they are a convention refugee um, other options or ways that is done is someone is fleeing civil conflict, ends up in a refugee camp, mm. goes through the UN's version of a refugee determination process. And then those individuals in the camp who then receive the designation from the UN are considered refugees who are then now looking for placement elsewhere. Okay, so um, as we film this, there is a war being waged against Ukraine, and the news is talking about refugees from Ukraine. So those wouldn't necessarily be convention refugees, but those are people who are seeking refuge. They, they're, they've been displaced from their country, but they're not necessarily facing persecution in their homeland. Is that right? Yeah, so that would be the correct that'd be the correct way of distinguish of, mm. of recognizing it. And of course, when you're in the middle of a conflict, it is always fluid, mm. right? So that so that's going to change as the the um, unfortunately, right, mm -hmm. as the days and the weeks sort of unfold. Yeah. Um, and we are getting news right now that is probably going to change um, a lot of people's feelings and views and um, the definitions around what status these individuals who are fleeing uh, the Ukraine are going to receive. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then from the sounds of it, if so, that's someone who is displaced and seeking refuge. And then there are these, then the proper, not proper, the definition of refugee. So you mentioned an inland process and an outland process. So if someone can manage to make it to Canada, they can claim or make an application to become recognized as a refugee within Canada. And then outside refugee, they outside of Canada, you said like maybe through a camp. So you said if they do get recognized, then they start to look for somewhere to be placed. How does that work? Do they still need somewhere to go then from the camp and to be accepted? 
Yeah. So what happens then with the UN, and this is just my sort of years of experience and um, connection with individuals who work for the UN and having them explain it to me. Uh, so the process then becomes someone is, uh, so someone completes the, the, the interview process and the determination within at the camp their name gets posted, right, for them, if it's an individual or a family, like they get posted. Uh, just sort of think of it like there's a bulletin board where mm -hmm. there are different countries who are accepting refugees. And then each country has a particular criteria where they are looking for individuals from who, who fall into a particular um, a particular grouping. So mm -hmm. for Canada specifically, right, depending on the country that the camp is placed, they, and depending on, um, so Canada does two, well, does two things mainly, right? Like, so the government will bring people over and then they will also have people who privately sponsor individuals to come to Canada. And generally like the, the criteria is the say or the expectation or the categories that the Canadian government promotes are the same for both, but sometimes it can be slight tweaks, mm. right? And so um, the Canadian government will put out a notice saying for these individuals, for these particular countries, we are looking to promote or receiving, or we are open and able to receive these particular categories of individuals. And they tend to be those who are on the margins or most vulnerable women, children, people who are, um, um, who are sexual minorities, right? Those are, and I'm just giving examples of religious minorities, those kind of would be the Canadian government would say to the UN, hey, you know what, these are individuals we are looking for right now to incorporate into Canadian society. Um, if you are privately sponsoring, maybe at your group is you know, it could be someone who's special, a group that is, it's most often like church groups, community groups, uh, perhaps there are groups who particularly specialize in supporting and assisting individuals from a particular category. Mm -hmm. um, it could be uh, orphans or young, or young men who are, um, who are involved in conflict and then, um, and are working through trauma, that kind of stuff. And so then the, the Canadian government might say, and you know, we also have private groups who are willing to take on these particular individuals, right? And so, that, so that's, if you're in a camp, that's sort of what you are waiting for. You're waiting for a country to open up to say that your personal circumstance matches with, um, um, what they're able to inter what they're able to integrate and that's it seems arbitrary but it is done for a real reason because you want because people who are coming are have experienced hardships traumas right? and you want to and countries will should ideally recognize it's like these are individuals that we're best able to integrate into our society Right, like you're the government should ha always have a pulse on what immigrant service providers are are able to like who are saturated and what they're able to be able to take on because there's nothing worse than having individuals come 
and then they're not able to be integrated because there is no community that surrounds them that supports them. There's no proper supports or services that are available. Um, and so that's the, the, so those distinctions are really important to recognize. But unfortunately, what that can result in is people are waiting for a long time in refugee camps um, to find what is a good fit. And then if, you know, if you're a single person, a lot easier, but then if you add family and then the families are bigger and bigger, then it gets harder and harder. Or if there's particular special needs in families or if individuals, then it gets harder and harder to find placement. Because, because the concern is that the government doesn't have those resources to support those special needs or larger families, that type of thing. It's easier to support an individual. Yeah, right. And then it's a lot easier to it's a lot easier for an in, a lot easier for an individual to be integrated. And then families need a families need a lot of resources and a lot of supports. And um, and every individual in the family is going to have different issues or concerns that have arisen. And so then that impacts things as well. Sorry, Kim, I cut you off. Oh, no, that's okay. I, I enjoyed your question. <laughs> I was curious how how the screens work. Like, can the government dictate what cities people need to land in? Can they get that, get that granular when it comes to uh, looking for the right people and where to place them? That I'm not 100% certain of. I don't think it gets that, I don't think it gets that microscopic where they're saying, okay, we're looking for people who would be willing to be in particular, in particular cities. Right. I don't think it gets that fine too, but I'm not hundred percent certain because that's yeah. the UNA that side of things are not, is not my specialty. So I'm imagining the government wouldn't be able to prevent people from moving once they were here anyway. So, yeah, because I mean, you, we do have the right, the charter gives us the right of mobility, right? Mm -hmm. So, and that right is, is one that is, um, granted or extended to people who are who are refugees or people who are even refugee claimants so yeah well i know they have for immigration and i mean i just know this anecdotally from speaking to people who have, who have immigrated uh not from not because of any like legal experience in the area but what i understand is that with the point system which i'm not so familiar with either mm -hmm. they get more points if they're willing to go to quebec and st and enroll their children in a french-speaking school for a year um and so I, I mean i don't know like that's that's the extent of my understanding of this which is why there does there is a lot of immigrants that that land in quebec and then i've, I've spoken to many immigrants who live out west in canada who landed in Quebec, and then after a year or so, moved out somewhere else. Mm -hmm. Do you, are you familiar with that? And if so, is there, you know, does refugee status um, have anything to do with that type of a system as well? I am familiar with that, but that's a different, that's a totally different, different system, right? So that is someone coming voluntarily. And so there will be, there will be a different expectation, right? Because you're, you're selling yourself to Canada and wanting to be able to be here. And so the, um, the stipulations can be a little, can be a little bit higher, right? Are the expectations? Like, for example, my parents, when they moved, um, being, um, part of like the, um, wet group of West Indians that emigrated to Canada or immigrated to Canada would, they were, had the options of it's like okay you could 
move to Toronto, but you're not going to get your permanent resident status as quickly as if you came to and lived in the West, which is why we have um, so many uh, West, Indian, West Indian communities sort of spread between mm. um, Ontario and out West to BC. Mm. But when it comes to refugees, it's not the same expectation. Right. So what happens though, is that after someone, so there will be, you know, there'll be groups that will sponsor private sponsorship groups who will say, hey, we're willing to take people with these particular categories. But, you know, you'll understand that you're going to be living in this community, right? So that's what happened in our eastern provinces where people were saying, we're happy to take um, Afghan refugees, you know, and then that helps build up their community and it gives a safe place, right? And then there are a lot of people who would not have chosen to live in a particular place, right, in, in the country, but, you know, given the opportunity because they're fleeing, this is, this is an option, then they go and then it, uh, and it turns out to be like, this is a great, a great way to, uh, a great community that they love and they feel safe in and, mm. and want to stay in. Right? So that's, I think those, that's the distinction is that it's, is that one is people are coming over voluntarily and the other is people are coming of, not of their own volition. And so they're given a little bit more freedom as to where they they land, unless they're connecting mm -hmm. with a particular private group, and then they'll go wherever the group is is located and is able to provide them support. Right. So, uh, sorry, Heather, do you have something? I was. Oh I, no, I was going to kind of go on, but if you have a question yeah. that's following up on that, you go ahead. Well, my question is: um, so, if you land in Canada, you come to Canada as a refugee. Like, let's say you, uh, whatever way you came in, you end up as a refugee in Canada. Um, what kind of, what kind of rights slash visas do you get? Like, are you, do you generally get a work visa or a student visa pretty quickly or, and, and what is the time frame like for becoming a permanent resident after that? Good. For, the, for anyone who's not super familiar with permanent residency in Canada, like once you become a permanent resident, you pretty much have all of the rights of, of a citizen except for the guarantee of being able to return to Canada necessarily. And, and then when you're a permanent resident for a while, you can become a citizen. So yeah. Yeah, how, how does that work for when you come as a refugee? Uh, that, those are good questions. And actually I was thinking I should mention, I should mention that. So when you first come to Canada and you are seeking, I'm always going to, I'll make the distinction because it's a lot easier. Okay. When you first come to Canada and you are seeking refuge, right? So R-E-F-U-G-E. I don't know why I need to spell it every time, but it just <laughs> makes life easier when sometimes when you're spelling it and you can know exactly that these are two different words. Right? So if you are seeking refuge, then you have the rights that are bestowed on someone who is seeking refuge. And so under the convention, there are particular rules that a country has to follow, right? When I'm, they're giving safety. So this is what we are, this is what we are seeing that's happening with the conflict, right? That there are countries who are, who are signatories to the convention who are saying, we are opening our borders to provide support and safe refuge to people for X number of time. And those individuals who are here, 
just like as if you had a guest in your home, you're going to extend to them the same privileges and opportunities as you would if there was a family member that was in your home, right? So um, when people come, they're able to work, they're able to study. Um, I think it's primarily work and study, their their rights of mobility, the same rights. the, The UN expects that you would treat this person as if they are akin to someone who is a permanent resident in your own country, right? So just shy of citizenship. And so it allows the people to people to be able to address and heal from whatever trauma that they've experienced, right? To be able to integrate as is needed, particularly for children to feel settled, because there is actually a study that is done on the mental health, mental and emotional and psychological health of individuals who are seeking refugee, refuge, particularly for children. That, like you need to feel that you have landed or that you have mm-hmm. that you are grounded in some way. Mm-hmm. Not necessarily that you are setting roots and going to stay someplace permanently, but but the sense that it's like, oh, I've arrived and I'm here, right? And then you can start to sort of offload some of the stuff that has gone on prior mm-hmm. to your coming. Um, and then uh, if, so that's for the rights as, so that's for the rights of, of someone who's seeking refuge. Uh, someone who is a refugee, sorry. Oh, that's my dog. <laughs> what is that? <laughs> so, someone who is uh, who is now who's gone through the process of seeking refugee protection has been found to be um, uh, found to be a convention refugee. Now that individual has the same rights that they had when they were just seeking refuge, right? When they were just a claimant. Right? So they're able to work, they're able to study your healthcare. I knew I was forgetting something. Mm-hmm. You're able to have access to healthcare mobility, right? That is still afforded to you. But what the door what door opens next is you're able to apply for permanent residence. So uh-huh. someone who's in Canada temporarily, which we, we're seeing with Ukrainians who are here on temporary resident permits or with temporary resident visas, they're able to study and work, right? Um, and um, and so they're able to stay and not and have less complications when they're able to, when they're wanting to extend those temporary resident permits. But they're not invited to apply to make to do to apply for permanent resident status. If you are now considered someone who is a convention refugee, after you've gone through the inland claim process, then you're entitled to apply for permanent residence. Um, so the timelines for those with temporary status in Canada, I'm not 100% certain as to what timelines are being quoted for individuals. Again, for example, individuals who are from the Ukraine who are here just seeking refuge and who are staying on a temporary basis. Um, I just, I imagine it's a, given what's going, what I've heard, I imagine it's a pretty quick turnaround, but I, I wouldn't be able to quote anything without looking on the, on the government's website. Uh, for people who are who are convention refugees through the inland determination process, their timelines for gaining permanent resident status is 23, 24 months, something around there, from when they first submit the application to when they hold the um, landing card or their permanent resident card in their hand. Hmm. 
Okay. Somebody would be contacting you to, to help figure out all that paperwork or could they do it on their own? So I, so I assist work. I work primarily with individuals who are making inland refugee claims. So they're not individuals who are in, in um, refugee camps, right? When those individuals who are in refugee camps come to Canada, as soon as they land in Canada, they have, they are considered permanent residents. Right? So they're no longer considered ref convention refugees, they're permanent residents. Right? They're given a document that says, here, this is your confirmation of permanent residence. Uh, right? that's, that's it. You're like, you're done. The race is over. Right. Um, whereas for people who are in Canada, who have are in a situation where they realize I can't return back to my country of origin or country of regular residence. I like, it's not safe for me. I, I would face a, a horrible future if I were to go back. Those individuals would then come and seek out assistance or representation for myself or from other refugee lawyers to be able to apply for refugee status. And Ruth, what does that process look like? Like, uh, I'm assuming you take them through a hearing of some kind, present some evidence. Like, what does that look like, um, your role and what they need to do to have a successful claim? So my role is real is to sort of shepherd or guide people through the process, right? Is to have an understanding of what of what the law says, right? And understand someone's story, and then say, okay, these are the things that you need. Like here are the pitfalls. Don't step in here. Or these are the things that you need. The goals you need to reach. Please do these things. Uh -huh. uh, so from the very beginning, um, I will I'll meet with. People talk, I'll talk about their case. I'll have a good understanding of what their situation is. I'll have, and I'll come, I'll match it to, there's two things. One is I'm looking at what the legislation says, right? Like, do they check all the boxes? Right? And then the other is what is the information, uh, the ob objective evidence that is coming out of these countries, right? So whatever country the person is from, I'll have to have, do it sort of like a running inventory in my mind to be like, okay, you know, what's the story about what's happening in this country is what the person telling me, does it overlay, does it overlay with what is, what I know is what's happening. And if I don't know it, then of course I have to go and do a bunch of reading and research mm -hmm. and learn what's going on. Mm -hmm. And then I'll say to the person, okay, I need you to gather these particular pieces of evidence or information so that we can assure the decision maker that yes, you do meet the status of, or you do meet the criteria of someone who should be receiving convention refugee protection in Canada. Um, and that, so that's sort of prior to the hearing, there's a lot of coaching and support. Um, at the hearing, it is all, it's an inquisitorial system. So I don't lead questions. The member leads questions. So the person, I have to do, get the person ready, like get their evidence in, get them ready. And then it's, okay, you're under the spotlight. And then the member's going to ask you questions and you have to be able to answer the questions without my involvement, without my sort of poking or prodding. I can do cross afterwards, right? So mm -hmm. I can, if there was a point that was missed or something went wrong, I can say, I can mm -hmm. answer some, um, I can ask some further questions, but it really is, they're under the spotlight. They have to be able to answer all of the questions. Um, and then, uh, and then at the end, it's the 
it's the decision maker. Right? It's right. it's up to them to say, okay, yeah, I believe this person's story. I think there's merit and I'm going to grant them status or not. So it sounds like there's kind of two stories that you need to tell. Number one is like that bigger picture of what's happening in their country of origin. And then that micro level of like, that's their lived experience and that this is why they're fleeing and need a safe refuge. Um, you said that they need to show, so one element is that they need to show that they're fleeing persecution and that persecution is based on one of those enumerated criteria. Is that right? Yeah. yeah. And is the persecution have to be coming, uh, by the government of that country or like, what if it was more localized or, uh, just a certain group or something like that? Like what's the, I guess, what's the test there? So, no, it doesn't have to come from the government. Uh, but what you do have to show is that the government is not able to provide protection. Right? So it can be someone is it could be someone who's being persecuted by a family member. Right. So, um, you know, someone's someone has discovered that their that their child is um, their child's sexual orientation, sexual orientation is different or, or of a minority. Um, um, or that they're not, sometimes it's like children are not gender conforming, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so then parents, you know, quite sad, very sadly and heartbreakingly persecute their own children, right? And cause them harm or wish to cause them harm. Um, and so the, in that instance, right, I'm showing that the government, that yes, this harm exists, that there's a future risk of harm if they were to return mm -hmm. because it would be ongoing and the government is either not able to or unwilling, right? So that's the real, so that's, so that's the real test, right? Is like, is the, what's going to happen in the future if this person was go is to go back? The past is a good indicator of what would likely happen in the future, but the focus of the, of the refugee hearing um, is what is the future like if this person were to return to their country of origin, and can the government provide them protection, or is there a safe place that they could live within their country of origin? So maybe the government isn't able to provide protection. Um, but is willing or is trying or has, you know, the state protection is quite limited and the person could move into a, a different city. Okay. Sometimes that can happen. Someone could say, okay, well, you know, my parents aren't happy with me, but I can move elsewhere and I can establish myself and safely or relatively safely and then not in anonymity without having to limit the expression of myself. And so then that person would might not be considered a person who is a convention refugee because they have options, right? The idea is, is that the refugee process is designed for individuals who, um, who have no other options. Hmm. The likelihood of us getting that wrong. And then what happens to people if we don't, if we don't help them? Oh, I don't like Kim, Kim asks, that's, that's, that's like my, <laughs> that was the question you're not supposed to ask. I'm just worried about all these people now who, what if they don't do a good job presenting their case, but they've got it, they do have a case. Like, how do we help these people? So for some individuals, it can, so if you, so if you lose at your refugee hearing, you can appeal. 
um, you can judicially review the decision. Chance of success with an appeal or judicial review is quite minimal, though, unfortunately. Um, and, and that would be because the the only thing that can really be, correct me if I'm wrong, but, but in administrative law, it's like reasonable apprehension of bias, um, you know, reasonable due process, things of that nature. Is that is that what's up for appeal? For review so on that's, appeal? Yeah, so that's partly it. So the appeal division will review. Um, it's not necessarily, uh, it's not a review. It's a, um, I would think of it more as like a re-examination of the evidence. Right. So okay. they're supposed to reassess things. They, like so they do the whole they go through the whole thing again. Okay. Yeah. But um, sometimes you can reassess it and it's like you come to the same decision. Right. Maybe it's a different route to the same decision, but it's the same decision because there isn't they won't take in new evidence. They'll re-examine what evidence was already there. Mm. Right. So if you like if you made a mistake, your counsel has made a mistake or your representative has made a mistake, then it's very hard to correct that after the fact. Mm. Uh, and then sometimes like Kim is right, like sometimes people do present really badly. Right. Like there's they're not they they don't get a chance to do have a do over. Right. It is an examination of what's already there. Mm -hmm. And if you answer the questions poorly, that's it. You answered the questions poorly and then that's it. Right. Um, and so that's why I say when you're doing an appeal or a judicial review, where then at the federal court, a judge is looking at whether or not the decision was a reasonable one. And as you know, what's reasonable is like on this massively yeah. broad spectrum. Right. It might not be fair, but it is a reasonable decision. And so then the person finds themselves out of luck. Um, they. Uh, the the government does recognize that sometimes that can happen, and so after a year, after your um, after receiving a year has passed after receiving a negative decision, you are able to uh, apply for humanitarian compassionate grounds or reasons to be able to stay in Canada. Um, and there are other screen there are other screens are sort of buffers that are in place um, after that one year period has expired, but those are. Like those are difficult filters in which you can be caught and avoid having to go back. Yeah, I think so. I mean, it was news to me when I took administrative law in, in university and, and we were learning about how those generally how appeals happen in that type of situation. And uh, it was news to me that it's like, they're very deferential to the decision maker, the original decision maker, and whether or not they agree, it's not really what's it's, it's whether or not it was reasonable. And they, there's things that go into what makes it reasonable. Like, did they look at all the evidence? And then I don't know. I like your thoughts on this because what I learned in general about administrative reviews or judicial review of administrative law proceeding sure. is that generally what they do is they just send it back to the decision maker to try again. Is that the same thing for refugee? And that's the same thing for, for immigration. So for all immigration matters, not mm -hmm. just refugee matters, all immigration matters, it's sent back to the decision maker. Sometimes it's sent back with the decision maker with um, the judge or the, you know, the justice's impressions or some, or you can make, they can make directions. Mm -hmm. Those are very, that's very rare because that would seem to 
be seen as uh, fettering the decision maker, um, but off, but oftentimes it's just sent back to be done again. Mm. With one hopes, then the decision maker looking at it again will say, "We'll learn from the previous uh, go round, and we'll we'll have a different um, mm. a, a different analysis." My takeaway from that class was that it's not very promising. That yeah. Because <laughs> yeah. that has happened, right? Where for myself, where it's like, great, I, I get a second kick at this, right? Like the JR was successful or the RAD was successful. And you just get the, a better written. Right, right. They, do their, <laughs> they deny it more effectively. That's, yeah. Yeah, yeah, without the mistakes. Yeah. That's, that's heartbreaking. Uh, just sort of thinking of the, how this would happen and how knowledge, I guess, and awareness evolves over time. Does it happen where, like, just maybe not a lot is known about what's going on in a particular area or country or situation? So at first it might be like, well, there's just not enough evidence here. But then as time passes and more folks come and maybe the more media or political attention is paid to it, then that awareness grows yeah, is, is there any way to go back in time for those first people 100% 100% and that again that is something that's happened to me where s sometimes your client right or that one individual is the canary in the coal mine right sorry I'm, I'm the queen of idioms as well so I'm, I'm gonna, like that's gonna be Evan's gonna be like editing out like every oh, ridiculous idiom. I love idioms. I love them. <laughs> or someone's gonna be googling like mm. the entire, like pause Google canary <laughs> line. Well, yeah, sometimes that happens where your client is the first one, right? Um, and so you all all you can do in those instances, what all you can do is try and get as much evidence and information as you can get from the ground, right? So, um, and which speaks to why it is so, like free press is so incredibly important. Mm. I think it's something that we, we, um, we've seen recently that has been batted around and mocked and taken for granted. And it's, as my parents would say, it's easy to take things for granted when your belly is full. Right. Yeah. Um, but um, I, I can't tell you how how grateful I am for people who are brave enough mm -hmm. to report on in whatever capacity it means that they have as uh, to put their lives at risk and report on and give witness to um, what people are what people are going through and what what is what is happening on the ground. Um, because if it wasn't for their bravery and sacrifice, you know, there are, there are many, many, many tens of thousands, millions of people, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people who, who, um, whose, um, you know, whose persecution and suffering would just, would go into the silence. There would be mm -hmm. nothing. We would know nothing of it. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. so, um, it's. So though that is that's my bread and butter, right? Is when people when people do that work, do that really hard, difficult work, and then I can I can pick it up and read it and I can say and I can show someone, a decision maker, like what this person is telling you. Cause some of it is sometimes it's well, a lot of the times it's surreal, 
right? Like the stories that we hear, you just think that's not, that's not possible. It's not possible that one human being would do that to another human being. Right. And if it wasn't for those, um, those individuals who are bearing witness and putting, you know, uh, pen to paper or finger to keyboard, we wouldn't know. Right? Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. There's some level of irony in there almost that these unbelievable stories are, you're trying to get them to be believed. Yeah. And they're unimaginable experiences sometimes. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Tough, oh, sorry. I was, I've got a tough question that I've been kind of like bouncing around for a little while here. Bring it, Ruth, you might hate me for asking this question, but we we built this podcast so we could give people accurate information or help build their perspective or their opinions on facts and educated people and experience. What is your impression of our refugee system would you say we have a fair system in canada should we be proud of our system um i think it's important to kind of get your take on things because you are somebody who has has a probably a really important perspective i think we do have a, a fair system i think it is a system that we should be incredibly proud of can it be better anything and everything can be better right without change then Right. Like that's things must also always change and evolve. Um, I'm very proud of the fact that we have a, a community, a society where there are people who give themselves 110 percent to this system. And whether it's from, you know, from the bureaucrat, from like the, from the minister and the bureaucrats that surround the minister to, you know, the to the. The people on the on the front lines who are in immigration immigration uh, service providers who are who are working with like there's just there's a breadth of knowledge and experience and passion that goes into making a system that I think is really really good. Um, always working at making it better. So there's are there tweaks and improvements that can be made? Yes, and I think, but there are tweaks and improvements that can be made and that they're seen to be able to be made, right? Because sometimes things cannot work and nobody notices and nobody cares to notice, um, but that's not where we're at, right? Like where there are things, there are improvements that can be made and people see it, right? And people in positions of power see it and have a willingness um, and, and luckily have people in the community like myself and others who are voicing it and who are always going to be uh, voicing it and saying, okay, this could be better. This could be different. And then also saying, thank you. Like, thank you for, um, and larger society that we live in, we live in, you know, despite what is, what we sometimes are experiencing, it feels like real significant fractures in our society. One thing that I has always amazed me in the work that I do is just how absolutely wonderful Canadians are and permanent residents who are living in this country and how happy they are to share and to support and contribute to others. Because I've had clients who are here where like they don't have, like there's nothing. Like there, there's, there's, they don't have any, two things to rub together and they leave my office and I'm like, I might actually have to like bring this person home with me because I don't know what's going to happen, right? Like, like, oh no, like they don't have anything and they... And then the next time I see them, it's, you know, they've got this or that person that's helping them and supporting them. And like, it's just the Canadians are, and, and, um, and 
people who are living here in Canada are always happy to pay it forward and to, to help others like above and beyond and share generously. So that does lift, lift my heart and spirit. Mm. Yeah. That's nice. It's nice to get a good report on our society once in a while. Right. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, on that vein, I was wondering like if you have any details or information for people that might be watching this who might want to sponsor a refugee or get involved with a group who sponsors refugees? So I would, um, so check first, check out the uh, immigration, immig oh, I'm, never, I'm not going to get the acronym right, Immigration Refugee Citizenship Canada's website to learn more about private sponsorship and how that works and what you could do. Um, there are always groups that are looking, so contact your local immigrant service provider, check, check things out with them and see um, who's, what groups are there. Nine times out of 10, the groups who are doing sponsorships are church groups. So um, look to different um, denominations and faith groups that are out there. And then you can, people can always start, right? So maybe there's no one, no one else that's doing it or looking at the country that you're looking at or looking at the particular need that you're looking at and that really sort of resonates and fits for you, then you can start a group. Right? And so tussle around, get people. And it takes, it does take a long time. It's not easy. Uh -huh. right? And you might need, like, you'll need to retain counsel. And right? there's lots of stuff. There's a lot of, it takes a lot of money and a lot of, like, um, uh, uh, gathering a lot of resources. But it is possible, right? So speak to other like-minded individuals as well. Uh -huh. um, and then you might be able to get a group together. And then for those who, and I always say this, like for those who you don't have to do grand gestures because it, you don't have to look forward to meet, meet on someone who, where there is a need, right? So look at the different immigrant service providers who are willing, who are looking for volunteers, right? The Immigration and Refugee Board is always looking for people to act as volunteers and support. Um, and then there will, I, I guarantee you, if you start asking around, right? Like if you open yourself up to the, to the opportunity to help others, it will present itself. Um, and it can be something as simple as I've had, and over the years that I've done this, like I've had people who, just been, um, I had, I had, I'm thinking of one particular family where they um, made friends, they were here, they're seeking refugee protection. Uh, they, they had an, a number of young kids under the age of five and they're just like, just struggling, right? And they became friends with a, 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 a neighbor in their in their apartment building who was who was of West Indian descent, right? So they're like, "Well, our lawyer is of West Indian descent. This woman must be really nice as well." And literally, befri just befriended someone. Just was just like, "I think you might be a nice person too." And and this and this woman just for no connection with this family, no nothing, just like. Sure, sure, I'll help babysit. And so when we were at, and so the funny story is, is we're at the hearing and I, you know, I was like, okay, who's taking care of the kids? And they're like, well, we brought our, 
we brought our babysitter and this woman, like this woman looked at me and then I looked at her and we're both like, oh, (laughs) and she's like, that's why they chose me. Like I'm looking at your face and that's why. You know, that is, that's consistent with my experience with people from the West Indies as well. (laughs) Very nice. (laughs) Right? Like like something as simple as that, like just opening up your heart and giving, Uh giving up your time and your energy. Right? And there's so many of my clients that, that have had that, like just fortuitous relationships and friends, friendships, someone at their workplace who just took an interest in their lives and their story, or, you know, they have, I've had the other day, I had a client who had one of my emails and uh, couldn't figure out what I was asking and just like, just turned to a coworker and it's like, can you help read this with me? Mm-hmm. So I can understand what my lawyer wants. And then that strikes up a friendship. I think that's the most, I think probably sometimes we look to big things to do and we overlook the small things where like you can make just a huge difference in one person's life that is, can be monumental. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's, and it's a lot, and it's a lot easier right? Like when we're, we all live busy lives and have too much on our plates. Um, and sometimes the, sometimes the simplest and easiest thing and the thing that you have most space for is just helping one person. It's mm-hmm. mm-hmm. nice. a lovely, it's a lovely idea. <laughs> I feel bad that I'm not helping more people now. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure that's what Ruth wanted. She's really, that was just a big guilt trip for you, Kim. I'm feeling yeah. it. I'm feeling it. Like, there, I mean, there's, we all have time to help people. And I mean, of course, you know, we're going to be drawn to things in different ways, but it's never even crossed my mind to, to reach out to an immigration organization and, and see what I can do to help. And, and, you know, even if I only have limited time, I'm sure there's something I can do. Or, mm-hmm. I mean, how many boomers out there are, you know, have copious amounts of free time and they're looking for a place where they can uh, get back and maybe not overcommit themselves because they're aging, but maybe this is an area that, that they might want to look into. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Yeah. Right. And just and lived experience is the best experience to bring to the party. Right. It's you don't have to be an expert in anything. If you've just lived here long enough. Uh Right. And that you've learned like there are certain particular customs and ways and patterns that someone might be perplexed with. But you're like you can very easily find words to explain it. Like, wow. How many uh, how many if any of us who have traveled everywhere, anywhere. Right. Like if you have that experience of being like the only person in in a sea of, of what is different, uh-huh. the, someone who's willing to stop when you're asking them for directions mm-hmm. and listen to you and then point you in the right direction. That's like changes your day can make a, a, a good vacation or a terrible vacation if no one stops or helps. Right. Yeah. 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 That's so true. Yeah, you, you don't want to go down that street. <laughs> don't, <laughs> right? Don't, don't go there. Yeah, something, something that simple. Yeah. Like you don't want to eat at that restaurant. No. Yeah. Yeah. yeah stay away from Boston Pizza. <laughs> so is it tough? Is it, is it tough seeking counsel for people? Like, are there many 
people who are practicing in this area, or do you find that you're you're being pulled often um, and don't really have the time to help everybody out because there are so many people looking to escape atrocities that are happening all over the world? Um, I think there are a lot of there are a lot of council that do what I do. So it's not particularly it's not the um, it's not uh, that there isn't enough. Um, it's it's expensive, right? Because people who are here seeking protection have flown here money from either board, begged board, stole money to be able to get here, right? And are working and. So it's, I think the, it's the money piece that is the hardest. Um, Legal Aid Alberta does provide individuals with coverage so people can apply through Legal Aid for coverage to be able to get a lawyer and that way. But then, you know, there's only a finite amount of resources with Legal Aid as well. Um, and there are, um, so the different immigrant service provider groups do provide people with some guidance and support. So that can be of some help, right? But so that I think that would be the hardest. It's like, it's just getting the resources to be able to access the help is the hardest piece. So, so Heather and Ruth, you guys know each other from Legal Aid. Is that where the background started? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And for people who are going, so we talked a little, like a long time ago, many episodes, like probably like 25 episodes ago about how you access legal aid in divorce and income scenarios that allow you to apply. What Would there be different criteria or is it an income criteria for seeking assistance in this way in legal aid? So for seeking assistance for an immigration matter at legal aid, one has to be financially eligible and also there has to be shown that there's merit to the claim. So it's a two-part test. That's a pretty low bar for both, but it is a two-part test. Yeah, low or high, depending on how you look at it for the finances, you got to be, you got to have almost nothing. Yeah, yeah. Um, which, is, which has to be tough because they do have almost nothing. So. Yeah. I mean, if they're able to get a job, that might be enough. Like if they have a full-time job, that might be enough to disqualify them from legal aid. Yeah. Yeah. They can be. What is the income threshold for legal aid? Oh goodness. No, I don't know that. Not off the top of my head. I think it's below 30,000 a year. Is it? I can't remember. Last time I last time I was aware of it, like checked yeah. it out. I think it was like, yeah, something like twenty eight or twenty five thousand a year. It just might be. Which is so yeah, which is so the low. Of people in your family, right? So and then it's, right, yeah, it right, to be the number right. of people in the family too. Yeah. yeah, but I don't know if they have that published easily, readily available on their. Um, I don't know. I don't think they. I don't know if they do on the on their website. Mm. Oh, this is from 2015, so it's not probably not great. Hmm. I don't even know if I want to say it if it's that old, but it was definitely in the 20s for a single person, yeah. like in oh, the $20,000 range. Just That's apply. Just ago, apply anyways. Ruth will help you. Just apply. If you get <laughs> in, Ruth will, be, Ruth will be your lawyer. You'll be good. You'll be golden. <laughs> Disclaimer, that is not a guarantee. It's running on no, a lot of other no. You are not guaranteed to get legal aid or to have Ruth represent. <laughs> and Ruth already did, you already did st share stories of how, you know, you're not always, your clients are not always successful. And so, you, you know, of course, of course, that's not the case, but. 
Yeah. Um, Cameron, did you have any other burning questions? No, I just feel so sad now. Like there's so many people who need help. How are we going to help them? Well, don't feel, don't feel sad. Kim. feel, think about it this way. This is a better way to think about it. In Canada, we have this great system set up where we allow people to move to this country and become basically citizens of the country uh, because they can't go back home. And if they have no money, we have systems set up to help them go through that process. That's all. Those are good things. That's True. glass half full. That's right. <laughs> and you can now yeah. contribute to that in whatever way you can, whether it's uh, by donations of money or time and in whatever amount that you do, it's going to be, it, it's going to be well-received. It's going to go to a good place. So instead of feeling yeah. like, Oh man, I haven't done anything with this. I'm just basically a terrible person. You can think I like, am. Hey, I can do something to help somebody. <laughs> Uh, remember too it, it's tax season as we're filming this but at tax time when i'm looking at the deductions for taxes like like what i'm paying for taxes i'm like that's part of what that money is going to support are these processes and these folks right so you know there's a reason we don't have a three percent tax rate or, or lower in canada because these lovely things do cost money and um we as a society have decided we're going to all pay for that a little bit and contribute That's, to it so that, i can see like it's good for your mental health to so like focus on like yeah, this is helping pay for people it's, as opposed to like all the other things that the government inefficiently. <laughs> that you may not love. I don't know. Yeah, don't think about those things. Be quiet. <laughs> <laughs> and there's lots that you can, and then, you know, what also I'm hoping some people will take away from this is that they're hearing the truth of how the system works because I have heard a lot of horrendous things about refugees in the refugee claims system and process. And um, when people know the truth of how it works and how beneficial it is for all that are involved, um, that makes a healthier country, makes uh, makes it for a better world. Uh, then when you hear mistruths truth, being spoken in your circle, you can correct people politely. There you go. Kind. Ruth told me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I think that's, that's, uh, that's, that's why we're doing this really is because we want people to have access to that knowledge, that basic knowledge that um, is out there that they just can't tap into. It's the same thing with, we talk about divorce a lot. We talk, we've talked about, we've talked with all kinds of lawyers doing all kinds of things. And the hope is that, you know, you raise the, that level of knowledge for everybody that's going to help everybody. Yeah, exactly. Ruth, is there anything that we didn't get into that you want you've been dying to share? Uh, the only other thing that I realized I didn't we didn't touch on is that um, so in Canada, people can make refugee protections, um, uh, make applications for refugee protection. But there's also a category which is kind of unique to Canada is that people who are in need of protection, that's a, is a separate category. So it's called. They're called. It's called Section ninety. Section ninety seven, which is the section in the legislation. Um, and so it's the Canadian government's recognition that sometimes people are fleeing situations or facing a risk not because of a convention ground, as is enumerated, but. Um, maybe they're like facing like criminal elements or like there could be other wider variety of, of 
different ways. Um, and so that that expands the definition and opportunity for individuals who might not fit into a particular category, but can say, look, I've, I'm not safe. I'm, I am facing a personal risk if I were to return to my country. It's not the same as I'm facing a risk because of my religious, my, uh, my religious affiliation or my political opinion, but the, the risk is there and the fear exists nonetheless. And so the government has created a category for those individuals, which I, mm. which I think is mm. great. Yeah. I, so just to make sure I'm getting it. So there's the UN, um, what do they call it? The UN convention on, and, and that's what you, what you, when you're saying convention refugee, that, that's talking about the UN convention, right? Yes. And if they don't meet any of those criteria, that doesn't mean the story's over for Canada. We have this other, the Section 97 of, I'm assuming it's called the Immigration Act or something like that. The Immigration and Refugee Protection Act. Yeah. Right. Under the Section 97 of that act, there's additional, or there's criteria that uh, doesn't, that is, is outside of what would be the criteria under the convention. And Correct. yeah, including criminal elements. And which I have a friend who was in my church in, in Surrey, who is from Mexico, who was a journalist. Yes. And, yeah. and I don't know, like, I don't know anything about his immigration situation, except that he was granted refugee status. And so it could very well have been under that section 97, because what I understood about his situation is, you know, he had been reporting on cartels and stuff in Mexico city. And that was why he had to flee because of yeah. being in danger for his life. But yeah, that was so the, a, a situation similar to that, right? Where mm -hmm. someone could be shown that it is um, there, and it's usually in that for that category, Section ninety seven. It's it's you know non government agents who are who have just not taken a liking to you. So then right. you're, you've got a target on your back and. So this is, so this category exists because there's a recognition that um, that above and beyond the grounds that are enumerated in the the chart in the UN convention that you know unfortunately people want to do harmful things to other people for um, a variety of reasons. There might be something unique, more new, unique to you yeah. as opposed to a category kind of idea. Yeah, I've got yes. another question. Oh. Like another question that I'm like sad about people. So we have a lot of news reporting of people trying to cross through the states into Canada. It's minus 30. They're freezing, trying to get into our country. They're getting turned away or something's happening. Maybe one person dies and there's people. What happens in this scenario? Where do these people go? Like, is it a shelter that they're sent to? Or are they just, are they put in prison? What happens to these people? Okay, so I guess to explain the background is that Canada has an agreement with the United States and, and there um, is called the Safe Third Country Agreement, where we have each recognized the other as a safe third country. So someone is fleeing their country of origin if they land in either Canada or the United States and they want to cross and make a claim in the other country, they expect that they are turned away, right? And that's for at the land border crossing. So they're turned away because there's a recognition to say, for example, if someone was in Canada and going to the US, they'd say, well, 
you know, you were in Canada, you can make an asylum claim there. We're not going to accept um, you making a, an asylum claim in the United States. And then vice versa, if someone was in the U.S. and they're coming to Canada, we would say, um, no, we're not going to accept you in Canada because you could make a claim for refugee protection in the U.S. Um, there are exceptions to that. Um, and and I won't get into it, but there are exceptions. And so that's, so when we're seeing people crossing the border, the reason why they're crossing the border on foot is one of the loopholes around that is if you were an irregular arrival, uh, so an individual who crossed the border on foot, then the safe third country agreement does not, so STCA does not apply to you. And so that's why people are crossing the border on foot. So, if they are able to come across the border, then they are allowed to make a refugee claim here. They're not barred from the, for the fact that they were in the U.S. They can make a claim here. And then the vice versa happens. If they're able to go across foot from Canada to the U.S., they can make an asylum claim in the U.S. without um, uh, and and they, they're not barred from making an asylum claim. So for those people who are able to to be who are able to reach Canada on foot and cross over they are able to make refugee claims right like they're they're treated just they go through the process as usual for those individuals though who um, who have driven across the border and have been stopped, right? Like they're not an irregular arrival. And it's realized that they came, you know, from the U.S. and they're turned back. Uh, and then there's different scenarios. Sometimes people are allowed to stay in Canada and make humanitarian and compassionate applications. So those are called H and C applications. Um, so that's an option. It's not the same as a refugee claim, but it's similar in and um, what sort of um, lens that the person's application is viewed through. If they're turned back at the border, if they're said, hey, you know what, safe third country applies, you're expected to go back to the United States. Um, you know, they go back and they either um, figure out how to make an asylum claim in the US if they're still eligible to, to be able to stay in the United States on a temporary or permanent basis, or they work out some way to return back to their country of origin or their regular country of residence. Ruth, why would someone be going, like trying to go from the States to Canada or vice versa? Are the refugee um, criteria different in each country or is it easier to get to the States from some countries, but then they ultimately want to wind up in Canada or what's kind of the, what's going on there? So there are a number of factors, right? Like, so sometimes people are in Canada or in the U S because it was, that's the visa that they had mm. and it's whatever country that they're from, it might be easier to get an American visa or it might be easier to get a Canadian visa. Right. And so they they've landed and then they they really ideally want to end up in the opposite country. Mm -hmm. um, oftentimes it's there's family, right? So if you're fleeing a situation, you have a U.S. visa already, and but your family is in Canada. It's like, well, I'm going to take advantage of the U.S. visa 
Right. And I'm going to come to Canada and because my family's here and sometimes they do vice versa. Mm. And then of course there's, uh, there's um, a recognition or an understanding that maybe one process or one system might be more beneficial or easier to navigate mm. than the other. Mm. Right. So, um, and so that can be a factor that causes people to decide, Hey, I'm in one country, but I'm going to go to the other because of, um, because it might be easier someplace else to, to put forward this claim. Interesting. I have one more question for you. Um, are there any, I don't want to say trends, but themes that are sort of happening in refugee law right now? Are there any areas um, of the world that are, I guess, underserved or under-acknowledged that refugees are coming from right now? Um, so we've, so, um, that information, there is information online. So if you go to the immigration and refugee boards website, uh-huh. there is way to ways to access that information. And it will say, what are they like the top 10 countries? Uh-huh. And they've, and they've been the same since I've started practicing. Right? Oh, like, okay. like, so China, India, I can't list them all. Mexico, right? Like those are sort of the top countries. Um, And so it's a combination of people fleeing civil unrest um, or people fleeing... um, um, sort of um, personal circumstances or criminal elements, Mm -hmm. right? So Mm -hmm. there's a whole... There are flashes where it's like, oh, this seems new, Mm -hmm. right? So... There's different conflicts in different parts of the world. Mm-hmm. Um, let me try and think. Like Cameroon is one, uh, where uh, Yemen was one for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, Nigeria, but Nigeria is always a, a country that is always on that list. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Democratic Republic of Congo, Mexico, Honduras, El Salvador. Uh, so those are sort of your, sort of your top uh, refugee-producing countries. Mm-hmm. North Korea, um, Pakistan. Mm-hmm. Sure, yeah, just <laughs> pretty much ev- just everywhere where there is conflict. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I'm like I could list them all, or yeah. I could just like yeah. pretty much just everywhere, everywhere, um, <laughs> anywhere. <laughs> you've seen a lot of. You know, a lot of the claims that we're seeing now are more personal circumstances. So um, I see a lot of um, gender-related claims, uh, claims based on membership in a particular, well, gender is, so membership in a particular social group is a category for people who um, who are members of a group that is, um, that is either mem- your membership in the group is something that cannot be changed, like a family group or gender or um, or sexual orientation, or membership in that group is inalienable and in, into who you are and how you construct your identity. Mm. Right. So um, we're seeing a lot of those those type of we do see a lot of those type of claims um, for those type of in, for those individuals who find themselves that they're being persecuted because they're not able to uh, express who they are. Right. They don't have the freedom to express who they are and live their life. 
way that is true to how they they identify and how they see themselves. So that happen that does happen. And then there's always political you know political persecution is also quite quite common, and religious persecution is also very common as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um. If someone was interested, this might not be fair. <laughs> Maybe you don't know. But if someone was interested in reading a personal account or sort of getting an idea of, you know, the lived experience of someone who has had to seek refuge, is there any good biography or literature out there that you would recommend to listeners? Oh, that's not fair because there's so like there's so, there's such good stuff, but it's like I'm not going to remember the names of stuff now. <laughs> okay. Oh well, man, yeah. well, um, there, there is an option, Ruth, that you could like send Kim an email afterwards. Yeah, I told you just, it might not be fair. <laughs> we, we can include we can include your list. Uh, yeah. in the notes of the podcast and on the website page for yeah. the episode. All right, I'm going to do that because there's so like there are so many like there are so many like amazing movies and podcasts mm-hmm. um and and books that are out there that are just like absolutely so inspiring and heart-wrenching and mm-hmm. um yeah like mm-hmm. that gives that gives you all the feels for sure. I'm going to yeah. do that. Yeah, I'm thinking about I'm thinking about this one that's on Amazon Prime right now. Oh, I can't remember the name of it, but it's this guy who was I want to say uh, oh I can't even remember the country he was from in Africa, but he's he is, is a Muslim country, and right after 9/11, he was like living in Canada and ended up getting deported to the United States because they wanted to arrest him or something like this. And he got arrested and then was held in illegally for many years and, uh, you know, had nothing to do with it, but he was tortured and and everything. And then, you know, it's a movie because he eventually did get released and was, you know, got a settlement from the government for all the illegal stuff they did to him. Mm -hmm. I can't remember it. It's like, it's, it's a relatively new movie. See, well, and that's what happens. Like it there, goes there in go. and then goes that's out. That's why you didn't want to. That's why you didn't want to answer the question. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, listeners, check out our website, and uh, we'll post some some of those things for further uh, reading and watching and listening to. Then, um, if you're interested in sort of a personal or some personal accounts, I guess. Yeah, I'll definitely um, I'll do that. I'll follow up on that. Awesome. Oh. Thank you, Ruth. Okay, any other questions, co-hosts? Anything else we need to put out there into the world? I feel, I feel like it was, uh, we got some awesome uh, information. It's funny because very recently we had another, we had an immigration lawyer on from private practice who does immigration. I don't think he does a lot of, I don't think he does refugee uh, status claims or anything, but still it's, this has happened a few times on this podcast where we have people who are in very similar areas, but it's like a totally different, um, bucket of knowledge, if you will, it's like a totally Mm -hmm. different experience. And so I learned so much. I really appreciate you coming on Ruth and sharing your experience and knowledge. No, I, I enjoyed this. I I could talk about this area like all day, every day. (laughs) <laughs> you're in the right job then <laughs> yeah <laughs> that's right <laughs> all right Ruth well thank you so much for your time and for coming on and sharing your knowledge and expertise um 
maybe we'll have you on again one day and we can delve a little deeper into some of these topics. Um, well, that would be great. That would, I would, I would thoroughly enjoy that. Awesome. Okay. <laughs> well, this has been another episode of access to justice. Thanks for listening or watching. If you have any questions you'd like us to address, you can send us an email at access to justice podcast at gmail.com. That's an access number to justice podcast at gmail.com and we'll try and get you an answer on an upcoming episode or if you have any ideas for topics that you'd like to hear you can send us an email there too thanks any information in this video is general information only and is not nor is it intended to be legal advice watching this video does not create a lawyer client relationship you should always seek the advice of a lawyer or other qualified professional for advice regarding your individual situation while we take care to ensure that the information contained in this video is accurate and up-to-date, we make no warranties or representations as to the suitability, completeness, or accuracy of the information contained in this video. Any reliance you place on the information is at your own risk. Kahane Law Office, Merrick Law, Heather Malarick Professional Corporation, Evan Clark Professional Corporation, Evan Clark, Heather Malarick, and any guests will not be responsible nor liable in any way for any content, including but not limited to any errors or omissions in the content, or for any loss or damage of any kind incurred as a result of any content communicated in this video, whether by Evan Clark, Heather Malarick, or by a third party. Party. Kim McDonald is a financial advisor with Raymond James Limited. Information provided is not a solicitation, and although obtained from sources considered reliable, is not guaranteed. The view and opinions contained in this media are those of Kim McDonald, not Raymond James Limited. Securities-related products and services are offered through Raymond James Limited, member Canadian Investor Protection Fund. Insurance products and services are offered through Raymond James Financial Planning Limited, which is not a member Canadian Investor Protection Fund. Raymond James advisors are not tax advisors, and we recommend that clients seek independent advice from a professional advisor on tax-related matters. Insurance products and services are offered through Raymond James Financial Planning Limited, RJFP, a subsidiary of Raymond James Limited, which is not a member Canadian Investor Protection Fund. When providing life insurance products, financial advisors are acting as insurance representatives of RJFP. Darkness of the dales dissipates, declines because of he who turned water into wine.